Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf. It is a pleasure to be here today. We have a very interesting show for you here in New York City. In addition to me, we've got Ryan Goodman of uh, NYU Law School and the co-editor of Just Security. How are you doing today, Ryan? Pretty well, David. Thanks. And uh, another of our uh, usuals, uh, uh, always here to brighten things up with catastrophe and mayhem, Dr. Kavita Patel, former senior White House official in the Obama White House. Hi, Kavita. Hi, David. Uh, and we are joined today by two former officials of the Trump administration who have been outspoken uh, critics of the administration and have done a, a great service, I think, in shedding light on what life has been like inside uh, the Trump administration. Uh, first, we have Olivia Troy, who uh, was a Homeland Security official who went on to work in the office of vice president on Homeland Security, counterterrorism, and then on the Coronavirus Task Force. Hi, Olivia. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. And uh, in addition to Olivia, we have Miles Taylor, who was the chief of staff in the Department of Homeland Security uh, through uh, two two uh, different leadership regimes there. Uh, how are you, Miles? Welcome. David, good to be here. And let me just say at the outset that it's certainly not going to help me that I'm on Deep State Radio. I think this plays right in the into the president's accusations of us. But uh, I've walked into it nonetheless, and excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. And of course, uh, as all of our listeners know, Deep State Radio is kind of a tongue-in-cheek jibe at that uh, concept. Although I have to Indeed. say, underneath it all is uh, an appreciation for people who are career civil servants who do a lot for the United States. Um, and uh, so. It's a, it's, 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 it was a, it was a conscious choice. Um, anyway, what I'd like to do um, uh, to kick it off is, uh, you know, have a, a round robin of a couple of questions and then we'll open it up to a round table. Uh, Kavita, why don't you kick it off? Yeah, thank you. And I'll be brief. And I want to thank uh, Miles. And my question is to Olivia, who is kind of a personal hero of mine. And it's because, so my question is a two part, but allow me to give you a 10 second ramble. I think I understand probably, um, as probably all of us do on this podcast, career civil servants and kind of the concept of service and the concept of being part of the wallpaper, you kind of blend your job is to support the principles, support the leadership and to do everything from you know sun up to sundown to support them. And so what Olivia did, not just in kind of speaking truth, but also allowing for people, and Miles, you did this as well, but I'm asking Olivia these two questions. So I wanted to just start by asking, number one, you've been very eloquent about what you think should happen, why you felt like you needed to speak up, and also your own departure and how hard that was for you. One, what 
what was kind of an inflection point for you? Was it a series of things? Was it one thing that you can remember and kind of the emotions for you around that? Because I can only imagine having been in some of those similar meetings myself under President Obama. And then the second is, if you could be the leader of the task force, if you could have been the person that heard the data, the facts, the advice, what would you have done? And I know you've said some of this in different settings, but those two questions, kind of what that moment was for you where you finally like, kind of said, this is it. And then two, what would be kind of that change that you would recommend and when would that have occurred and what would it have been? Thanks, Kavita. Uh, good questions, actually. Um, well, so to be honest, uh, with the, the the sort of the breaking point was really the Lafayette Square incident, um, and which is, I guess, not really COVID related, but I had been working in the White House for over two years by that point, and I had seen numerous things that along the way that were upsetting. But you know, I just hung in there because you tried to hang in and. You try to steer the ship in whatever way you can towards the right thing. And I think as the political dynamics got harder as the election approached, it it definitely got increasingly more difficult for me to feel like I was actually making a difference in countering the political dynamics that continuously overshadowed the work of the task force and the work of the experts and the doctors on the task force. But the Lafayette Square incident, for many reasons, was just very upsetting to me. It was, you know, watching Americans who were crying out, right? Wanting to hear their voices heard, watching the violent, the violent way that protesters were cleared out, thinking about COVID in that context, right? And the dangers of that. And then watching the president parade around, honestly, like a dictator, holding a Bible for a photo up in front of a church that he didn't even bother to, to go into to see if the church was okay or to pray or do any of that or deliver a message of anything that was anywhere near unifying, which is something that the country was really looking for at that moment. And I think that was just very upsetting to me. And it took, it took a lot to come back from that. And I eventually ended up leaving about a month and a half after that, about a month and a half after it. And so I think that was just sort of the low point because I think the hypocrisy of that moment just reached a whole new level for me and of, of just upsetting me at the core and just upsetting my moral compass and watching everything that was happening around me and watching the comments made about that moment, you know, the celebratory sort of lauding after it about having shown those protesters. And I just thought to myself, what am I, what am I doing here with this environment that I'm in? Because clearly it's not, it's only getting worse. Every day something happens that got worse, that made it worse. And so I think that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. And then in terms of, if I had been in charge of the task force, I think, I think to be honest, I, I would have moved a lot more swiftly. I think we spent a lot of time debating things that just didn't need to be debated, right? There were, there were numerous instances where we debated face coverings and the definition of a face covering and what does it mean to be a face covering and a mask and what does that mean and the definition of that. And although I understand at the beginning, we were sort of trying to figure out how we would protect our medical workers uh, just in terms of PPE and not running out of it and the use of masks and N95s, that's a different sort of debate. But I think 
at times we spent more time, how are we gonna message this to the public? Because it was a political narrative and agenda that was driving the response, not the actual science and the experts and the expertise in the room driving the response. And I think that we lose a lot of time because when you're in political meetings like that, you have the experts briefing for a good hour about what the data or a half hour about the, what the data really says. And then there's a debate of, well, if we message it this way, does it hurt you know, the economy and the governors? Or if we message it this way? And so I think there's, there was just a lot of time lost that, that we never got back because you know these experts convened for an hour or two hours and then everyone had to go back and get to work really or working day and night. Ryan? Um, so first, just a, a comment that's kind of interesting about the turning point of uh, Lafayette Square. We also at Just Security have published um, Kyle Murphy, who was a senior intelligence analyst at the Defense Intelligence Agency. And that was also a turning point for him when he left the government. And it's remarkable because both of you, in terms of your profiles, we think about like who was on the inside and the outside uh, trying to uphold the rule of law and uh, good governance. Kyle was actually one of the protesters uh, in Lafayette Square who was um, basically gassed essentially um, and cleared out while he was also a government employee during the day and, he's, and he resigns um, after that point. Then also just dovetailing with what Olivia said, saying that he thought that Trump was acting like the very dictator that he as an intelligence analyst was looking around the world and um, identifying in other countries. So just you know, remarkable in that sense. I guess the way to maybe also segue to one of the many questions I have for you guys, and then I was just gonna ask Miles, is, you know, Miles, you've been very great about mo many things um, and speaking out. And I think one of the also very persuasive things that you have said, when people have said, well, why didn't you speak out earlier is because earlier wouldn't have counted as much. We're now in that period of time in which the American public is listening and they can make a difference uh, with their votes. So speaking out earlier would not have been, in my view as well, as effective as speaking out now as the two of you are doing. Um, so just one of the other things that you have done, Miles, is calling on your former colleagues to speak out as well. And now we're down to the last two weeks and I thought that maybe one of the things that you could talk about is your experience in having spoken out um, and the reception that you feel like you've had. Uh, one of the other many great things that I think you've done is engage people who are even critical of you or maybe critical, but mis you know, misinformed about what role you did or didn't play in the government and what role you're playing now. And I think that could also be an important message that you give to current people who have not spoken out yet to talk to them about what the public space is like uh, now that you are you know, foremost, and both of you foremost in that public space in terms of people who have an important uh, set of messages and information to give uh, to Americans. Well, I, I want to interject Joseph, something here because of just the way that was framed. One of the reasons Miles is here is that I critiqued Miles on Twitter um, uh, and he responded to me in the most civil and constructive way possible. And I just thought, you know, I've got this wrong. I'm framing this in the wrong way. This guy deserves to be heard. Um, and I immediately sort of did a pivot. And so I all credit to you, Miles, for, for, for that small exchange. But I think it's emblematic of what Ryan was just talking about. 
Well, and I appreciate that a lot, actually, David, because I think it's what we've got to get back to. I mean, we have all retreated to our corners under Trump, myself included. I mean, I'm sure I'm out there doing fire and forget on Twitter and other things, and I get sucked into it, and it's constantly my impulse. But it's the environment that I really genuinely believe the president has created. I don't really think it's my neighbors and my friends. I mean, I think he has fanned the flames of this that we all get pulled into, um, you know, these uh, these battles with each other. And but it's important. I mean, jumping back, Ryan, to the I'll take your second question first because it fits with what David just mentioned. I think it's really important that any of us who left this administration subject ourselves to the most withering scrutiny possible because it's the only way that people are going to, one, know the real story and understand what happened behind the scenes and understand this consequential moment in history. But two, it's the only way that we're gonna get taken seriously. I mean, if I came out and I pretended I didn't touch any controversial policies in the Trump administration, that would be not credible. It would also happen to be wrong to say. Um, and, and I think that it's important that we subject ourselves to those questions. And I'm sure today we'll get into some tough questions on some tough issues that happened uh, during this administration. But in a way, Ryan, that leads to your first question, because it's a, you know, when the timing of speaking out and, and the reception, I, I'm gonna give you the answer. And I don't think I've said this in other conversations that I've had or other podcasts. I spent a lot of time in this administration before I left trying to convince other cabinet members to resign from this administration in protest and to make a point of what was going on behind the scenes. So I can see how easily a viewer might think, this Miles Taylor guy, he spent what, one, two, into the third year of the Trump administration, leaves, doesn't say anything, waits until three months before the election. What's going on with that? I mean, did he have a come to Jesus moment in August? And that's it? No, I'll tell you. In year one, I had my come to Jesus moment. I mean, on first contact with the president, it was clear that this man was quite unstable. And so people ask, well, if he was so unstable, why did you stay? My answer is because he was so unstable. I mean, people who actually know how to run security departments and agencies needed to be in there to run those security departments and agencies. Olivia is a great example. Olivia and I have known each other for some years now and was one of the most revered people inside the department. I mean, truly, and Olivia's gonna scoff at this, really was one of the most revered analysts in the 250,000 Department of Homeland Security and developed her reputation for good reason. And so when she and I had a conversation about her going over to be the Vice President's Homeland Security Advisor, I think both of us were clear-eyed about what she would be walking into over there. But the conversation was not, you know, well, we shouldn't participate in this because there's bad things happening. It was, you have to go over there, Olivia, because we need qualified people advising the Vice President of the United States. That said, there comes a point when you no longer are able to do good anymore. And when you realize that the people you're speaking to don't want to hear individuals speak truth to power, they just want to hear what they want to hear, that's when your shelf life starts to expire. And I watched that happen with a lot of people in especially the president's national security cabinet, the so-called axis of adults, right? John Kelly and H.R. McMaster and Rex Tillerson and uh, you know Jim Madison, you could go on down the line. They all went through a very similar evolution that me and Olivia did. We're just not household names. I spent a lot of time in year one and year two of the administration trying to have those very candid conversations with people like that behind the scenes. I don't wanna dime anyone out in particular by name, but talking to those folks and saying, do we think at this point it would do more good to leave 
and to just talk about what's happening in here right now. Because we were all mortified by what we were witnessing inside the administration, but there was that competing fear and a constant debate from these cabinet secretaries about, well, is it better to leave and call it out or stay and try to make it better? And that was a really frustrating conversation to watch play out. And for me, it reached a fever pitch at the end of the second year and beginning of the third year of the Trump term is um, folks who knew me on the inside that I was close to knew that I was getting pretty apoplectic about it and saying, we're not doing any good anymore. It's gonna be much better to get out of this thing and talk about it. But at that point in time, frankly, my opinion was who the hell is Miles Taylor? We need one of these prominent cabinet members to get out and say what they're all saying behind the scene. And I spent a lot of time even after I resigned from the administration, kind of trying to get that to happen. And the realization I came to at, towards the beginning of this year was, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think I'm going to get any of these people other than John Bolton publishing his book to really get out there aggressively. So, okay, I'll do what I can with what I have and tell my stories. And I'm glad that I did because uh, I was really lucky. I didn't know what the reception was going to be, Ryan. I really didn't. I thought I was going to be a man on an island. The left already hated me for being in the Trump administration. That was a given. And I knew that I was going to get my party to reject me in the GOP. And so, fine, I was willing to accept that. I was so heartened that I had friends like Elizabeth Newman, like Olivia Troy, like John Mitnick, Bob Shanks, uh, and a host of other folks, uh, Josh Venable, who had served in the administration at similar levels, uh, come out and start speaking up as well. And, and we've kind of pulled together a, a small army, and that's been immensely encouraging, but not something that I expected. But I'm glad. But there's still some household names who I really hope will speak out. But uh, if we're the ones that had to do it, um, you know, I'm still proud of, uh, of, the, of the group that got together. I, I know there was a long answer. The last thing I'll add, though, is I don't want to take the credit for that. I mean, they deserve the credit for being courageous. I got rear-ended one night on Massachusetts Avenue in Washington, D.C., and I went home so angry. And that's the night I said, all right, I'm writing this op-ed about Trump in the Washington Post. And that was the night I did it. So uh, I give Olivia and others credit for really thinking through a courageous decision. Me, on the other hand, I just got a minor concussion in a car accident and decided <laughs> to do something stupid. So, Right. So you're attributing coming to your senses with a, a brain injury. Is that <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and David, it so happens that the guy that hit me was a Joe Biden uh, telephone you know, poll worker that was calling people and encouraging them to vote for Biden. So it's poetic. Yeah, it's that deep state at work. Kavita. I, I just wanted to ask Miles, do you think that, by the way, I'm not surprised. There are many times I disagreed with uh, some of President Obama's policies around Guantanamo. I mean, there, there were many kind of examples of kind of failures, but it is a bit of an unspoken rule that you just don't cross the president. We didn't have someone who was, you know, unhinged, but so that was different. I think there's just a loyalty. I think both you and Olivia exhibit it. Miles, do you think that um, post-election, do you feel like the, I feel like there's a large majority of people like you who, for different reasons, personal and professional, feel like they're trapped. Some of them might be cabinet secretaries, et cetera. By, hopefully Biden wins. What happens after that? Do you see more and more people kind of doing a little retrospectoscope? What do you predict might happen? It's this is really tricky. I think actually more than anyone in the Twitter sphere of the media, David has captured that sort of future zeitgeist in a handful of things he's tweeted. David, I think you tweeted at one point, we're going to see so many books about, you know, I was brave behind the scenes, dot, 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 and some really pithy titles about how much people stood up to the president, but no one in America really knew it. I, I think you're right. I think that we are going to see people on 
reputation rehabilitation tours. But, but I'm going to offer a slightly different take than you, David, because some of those folks, I think, deserve to be judged harshly. And those are the ones who, behind the scenes, are willing to salute everything that the president says, even when it's crazy. And I've been in the Oval when the president has said things that are, by definition, racist, or even worse, actually illegal. And people will smile, and they'll kind of like laugh or they'll nod, but they won't say anything to the man. Those people, if they go out and write those books, I'm going to be the first person on the airwaves to say, no, I was there and you didn't stand up to the president. Um, on the other hand, there are a handful of good folks still in there at senior levels who really, in a respectful way to your question, I mean, you guys would always be respectful to President Obama. If maybe he had a bad idea, you'd give him counter uh, you know, information to inform his view. Um, but there are people who push back quite regularly against this president. And it may be surprising, uh, some of them to good effect. Uh, they'll continue to nudge him in a better direction. I don't wanna always say the right direction because I saw a lot of bad decisions made in the administration that could have been really, really bad decisions. Uh, and it's because folks were willing to say, hey, hey, this actually isn't the right way to go. Or even after the meeting, maybe they didn't say something in the Oval because that's a scary place to speak up against the commander in chief. But maybe afterwards they said, Actually, we need a second meeting with the president. No, I'm not going to go forward with that. We got to come back with more information. Uh, there's still good folks there that, that do that. And I do want to hear from them afterwards. I want to hear what happened after I left and what their calculus was and what maybe the American people didn't witness. So I'm curious to see what those folks say. But um, there, there, there was a spinelessness pandemic that swept through the Trump administration like a wildfire, especially once this so-called axis of adults started to leave. But those folks really behind the scenes had the courage often to stand up to the president. And, and I'm gonna say, I, my rule has tended to be not to talk about specific people and episodes by name other than the president, but I will say John Kelly was superb at in front of the president, you know, not being disrespectful, but recognizing throughout the course of the day, he would accumulate one, two, three, 10, 20 crazy things the president said that he needed to be talked down uh, from. And then at the end of the day, away from other people, having that private time with the commander in chief to really speak very, very candidly to him. And I'm glad there were folks like that. But towards the end of my tenure, the administration had been decimated of people that were willing to do that. And, and I hate to say it, but up until and including the only person I've exempted from my rule was Vice President Pence. And I'm not gonna put Olivia on the spot here, but um, there were too many meetings that I was really disappointed where I had expected Pence to kind of be the grown up sober uncle to step in when drunk uncle president was doing really inappropriate things and to protect us and to protect the country and say, hey, Mr. President, let's take that offline. I don't think we're gonna do that. Uh, I never saw that from the vice president. And so, that was tough for me. So I, I know Ryan's got a question for Olivia, but I've also, because we do this on Zoom, I, I can see Olivia's face. And as you were talking, Olivia was nodding. And so before we get to Ryan's question, Olivia, do you want to pick up on anything that Miles just said? Well, I was thinking to myself that I would say I was there for, I guess, about a year after Miles had left. And I can tell Miles that, boy, did things go south after he left. And it did get worse. And a lot of the meetings and some of the policies that we both witnessed along the way and the language and the rhetoric that was spoken in some of these meetings behind closed doors 
definitely probably, I would say people double down on it and it got worse after Kelly left and it got worse after miles left and it got worse. You know, I will put a plug in for secretary Nielsen. Uh, I, it was different after that. And we're talking about a lot of immigration policies, refugees. We're talking about the more <laughs> extreme viewing people becoming the loudest voice in the room. And, um, and I saw that happen and it got worse as it went on. And you, um, you don't, and, you don't mean Stephen Miller per se. <laughs> who? Why would I ever say that name? No, no. I try not to speak the name in the household, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> but I certainly, uh, these people didn't have anyone. They didn't have safeguards. They didn't have people to check them anymore. They had the president's ear and the rational voices in the room, uh, became, I guess the, that, that group of people became smaller and smaller as time went on. And it was, I think, really unfortunate. And I do think that it was a detriment to our domestic security and our national security as well, because you see great leaders and well-respected military leaders as well sort of get pushed to the side, especially in the national security and intelligence community along the way. And, um, and I think that we will continue to deal with the ramifications of all of that in the coming years because of all of that that, that went down. And to Miles' credit, I did meet with Miles for coffee after he came out and spoke out about in the way that he did. And it wasn't to say, I'm going to join you. I will say that. That was not even a thought in my head. I just wanted to meet him and say, I just wanted to put eyes on you and make sure that you were still in one piece because I've been worried sick about you. And so I am just, I'm grateful that you did this and I support you in it and I'll never waver on it. And thank you. But I'm glad that you're okay. And then... Next thing you know, I'm doing it too. But so there you yeah, go. Poisoned your, I poisoned your coffee. <laughs> so <laughs> you shouldn't have taken me up on that. That means a lot, Olivia. Yeah. It's it's when his car rear-ended you. And you know, <laughs> you know that was that was <laughs> I kept it going. Yeah, right. Exactly. Ryan, you have a question? Sure. Um, Olivia, I just wanted to also invite you to speak about some of the economic implications of the decision-making around the pandemic. Uh, too often, I think it's being framed as like how many lives could have been saved or would not have been lost if this was not being run by the president's psyche and concerns over his image and self-image and uh, his poll numbers. But I don't think enough attention has been paid to the economic implications of the way in which the response to the pandemic uh, took place. And if you could speak to that, I know you've been speaking about it recently, just even this last week, about what was presented to the president in terms of the realities of if he didn't do certain actions with respect to grappling with the pandemic, what would happen to American jobs and the economy. But if you could speak a little bit more about that, I think it'd be very helpful for people to hear it. First of all, I think setting the bottom line on this, I have to tell you that having been in the task force meeting since January, from the very, very beginning of the onset of when we were tracking the pandemic overseas, there is not a single economist in the room. So that should say everything about how this thing kicked off. Wow. And I, uh, to, be, to be honest, I actually advocated, I was a person that advocated uh, to have an economic voice in the room, such as Larry Kudlow or, and Secretary Mnuchin and all these people. Uh, so we actually added them once the vice president took over the task force response. 
and they became task force members because I had, you know, we had gotten a briefing early on and Larry Kebler joined a meeting where he was bringing up these points, but he was late to join the game in the room, if that makes sense. And so I think that's one problem with the strategy or the lack of strategy, I would say, on what was happening here in terms of the pandemic. But secondly, I think, you know, economics and and the welfare of, of Americans, I think, go hand in hand. And so what was just completely frustrating to me is we did get an economic briefing, briefing where we were told that this could possibly be worse than the Great Depression in terms of the economy if the pandemic continued the way it was. And I'll never forget the, the, the shocked faces around the room and the reactions. And I mean, I remember leaving very depressed after that meeting, thinking we are, we're going into a horrible moment for our country and I'm really worried about people and what's gonna happen here. And the thing is, what didn't measure up or what didn't add up was the fact that we could have approached it hand in hand. It should have been looking at, you know, a health response and a pandemic response with economics and understanding that taking measures such to slow the spread would in the long run impact the economy, right? Because people would be able to likely save their restaurants and people would be able to keep their jobs or we would, we would open up, so to speak, um, in a much more measured and organized manner in safe way, in a safe manner. And I think that I, it was just frustrating to watch this sort of derailment of that progress by the rhetoric on the mask and the, the politicizing the mask and things like that, because in the long run, we're no better off today than we were back in, let's say, March, right? What the cases are just as bad now, they're getting worse. The pandemic continues to go on. Our economy and people are suffering from it. Parents are struggling, you know, trying to manage jobs and children and homes. I mean, it's just, it's a really bad place. And if we would have done this in a more organized manner and approach, and we all would have worked hand in hand together, we wouldn't be in this situation today. And that is what's so frustrating. It was just sort of, and it's frustrating to think that the president claims to be, you know, the businessman. And that's why people elected them, because they, they didn't want someone from the traditional D.C. political apparatus. They wanted a business person to run the country like a business. And if you're a business person, I don't know fundamentally, like basic 101, why nobody could get on board with that. <laughs> it just it's, it's baffling. Well, I mean, Olivia, I, I got to jump in, though. I just want to say. Uh, Trump has run the country like a business. The problem is he's just run it like a Trump business, right? One where there's very little oversight, very little bit, very little accountability. It's veering towards bankruptcy. The shareholders and the customers are being screwed. So it's a Trump business, just not a well-running American business. Yeah. Valid point. Um, so we've got about 10 minutes left. Uh, and And I think, frankly, I'd just like to sort of keep going in the direction we're going, but maybe... Maybe Kavita and then Ryan, you could ask a question of both of our guests. I, I could go on with this for hours because you guys are so revealing, so candid. Um, uh, also, uh, I would add so professional and thoughtful in your assessment. Uh, and I just want to sort of unpack it more, um, but I'm not going to. Um, I'm going to turn to Kavita and Ryan to unpack it. What, you, you know, Kavita, one of the things that's great about you and 
and is the reason you're now on with us every week, having moved on from just commenting on the on, on COVID, is that your instincts are so good and you've been in a White House and you've seen how White House works. And I just, what's the question that's really eating at you that, if, you know, that you, you'd like to sort of open a door into the Trump White House that maybe Olivia and Miles can, can help you with? Well, I, th- I think it's, and that's very nice of you. I, I will send you my Venmo payment later for that. <laughs> I, that's the real deep state. That's the truth. Um, I, for, so I, a lot of people, Miles and Olivia's colleagues, especially those that were on the healthcare side from the Bush administration, from W, I've worked with and been, and consider them close friends, Alex Azar, Scott Gottlieb, people who are, I think, very professional but I'm troubled at what I now understand. There's what the public knows, interference, Michael Caputo, kind of things that come out on the surface. The pyramid, it's that iceberg with like what's really underneath the water. Um, do you, w- without revealing names and, and kind of concrete cases, I think Miles and Olivia, and, and this is hard I know to answer. So without divulging confidences, um, I think it's far scarier than Americans even realize. I don't know if we'll even be able to FOIA the right documents or have enough Politico investigations. Where should we be? Where should we be kind of pointing our finger? COVID is just, there's so much distraction. What is something that we should be putting a little bit more time and attention between taxes, this, that? There's so much there. When I think about OIRA, when I think about all the people who are good, who I know, and I think about this mountain of people who just what Miles said, Olivia, want to kind of let people hear what they want to hear. What is it that we're not paying attention to that we should be? Because I know that's there. Boy, that's a great question. It's uh, hard. Olivia, if, Olivia, if something jumps to you, you can go first. Otherwise, I, I can take it. But you tell me. You can start. I have so many things running through my yeah. head right now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Same. <laughs> I I think so that, I'm like overwhelmed. I think yeah, I'm not I mean, the mind blown emoji right now happening. Yeah. We we could we could go a little bit longer and and by the yeah. way, Kavita is completely wrong. If you want to mention names, you may. <laughs> okay, that's <laughs> right. I'm sorry. I know. What I, I, would say I, see, is... I I still default to like the like SF eighty six. Like I I can't, I'm still a government person. <laughs> no, it's a great question. Honestly, I think the answer is, you know, kind of a Watergate era answer, not just like a follow the money. But follow what the president said to who and when. Um, I jumped back to Ukraine and the president's impeachment. And when that happened, there were a number of former cabinet secretaries that were talking about the impeachment. A lot of them had left and hadn't been witness to the Ukraine incident, didn't have anything to add to the subject. But there was surprise behind the scenes because people were saying, oh, this is the one that got him? Boy. There are other episodes that felt like that. Now, I I was frustrated hearing that because the handful of episodes I witnessed that I felt like rose almost to that level, I exposed as quickly as possible, not necessarily publicly in this fashion, but, you know, internally, you know, I've talked about the president offering us pardons at the border to break the law. And that was something that right away I went to our lawyers and I documented and I had the quotes and I was like, you guys need to tell me, is this illegal that he'd said this? If so, we got to take it through the process. It was determined it wasn't illegal, right? But we made sure to share with the right people on the Hill that it had happened uh, because the president needed to be held accountable for behavior that was corrupt at best. But people who watched Ukraine and then said, 
oh, there's there's other things that I feel like are worse than this. Um, I said, well, don't you feel like it's incumbent upon you to share that? Now, in some cases, folks did in their own way. You know, John Bolton shared what I think was an equally egregious example with China. And for those who don't know, of course, he, he shared that the president wanted to cut a deal with China on farm products specifically to help his reelection in Rust Belt states and in the Midwest. And he was explicit about that connection. I think that's equally as damning as the president trying to get dirt on his political opponent by uh, withholding Ukrainian aid. But there are other episodes like that in the Donald Trump presidency that I think potentially rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors, which have gone undiscovered. And I think as much as people are sick of hearing about the Mueller investigation, Robert Mueller only got a sliver of this in his investigation. I think there is more to still be found out about how the president handled the post-2016 Russian interference election period and how damning it is in terms of his unwillingness to protect our democracy against a massive foreign enemy. There are a lot of stories to unpack here. Uh, you know, Olivia and I are just a piece of this story and, and we're trying to tell as many of those as we can to shine a light. But there are other people who haven't shown a light yet and boy, uh, if they would only flip the switch, they've got very, very bright flashlights. And I think they've got an obligation, not just to history, but to the rule of law to tell some of those stories. Olivia? Well, I'll take it from the angle of that Miles said, uh, follow the money. I think when it comes to the pandemic response, I think we are going to see numerous, I, I assume we will see numerous investigations uh in in the future and i will i i personally believe that we'll see criminal investigations on some things that happened behind the scenes that i'm almost positive cost us lives uh on things that were done and made i I don't mean to again put you in an awkward position but when you say follow the money you mean deals that were done or things that would benefit people individually or companies that were close to the president or alternatively to the president's son-in-law? I think it's all of that. I think it's all three of those buckets. And I think it's, the reason I say it's criminal is when certain private sector entities Mm. have that much power on something and you have people dying in their own factories because the government didn't do anything to protect them when these institutions exist to protect them. I think we all need to take a step back and really just kind of peel the onion back a little bit and understand well, what really happened. And Olivia, you know, I don't know how much you're able to comment on this, but uh, I'm, I'm familiar for whole, wholly different reasons that there was a cabal of U.S. CEOs that flew into Washington, D.C. and posted up at a hotel a couple blocks from the White House to help privately advise Jared Kushner on some of the response. Now, some of these people who I know personally, I think actually did it for good patriotic reasons. They came into town and said, I run businesses. I want to help with the response. But there were a lot of companies that profited off of aspects of the COVID response. And it's very difficult for me to imagine that some business voices in uh, the White House's ears didn't have self-interest in mind in terms of what they were recommending. And the period was very chaotic. That deserves additional scrutiny. And I can tell you one without naming names that isn't necessarily COVID related or as consequential as Olivia said, but I've seen this. And And I know that there's people investigating this right now, but there was a company at one point, a specific contractor, the president 
was in a meeting with us in the Oval Office. And he said, this contractor says they can build the whole wall for a fourth of the price that it's being built right now. And everyone in the room immediately seized up because we were all people who've been in government before. And one thing you know about government and community, you can vouch for this, is at that level, you don't pick your favorite contractor, right? There's a very unbiased competitive process that happens. So corrupt episodes uh, can't play out where a specific contractor gets a bid because the president says, I want this one. And then money is exchanged, uh, money's changing hands. So when the president named a specific contractor that he wanted to build his wall and kept pushing it with us, it made mm. everyone very nervous. And then incidentally, this contractor did get some contracts with the wall. That's being investigated now by different organizations. And I know there's some journalists that are looking into that, but that was only one episode I witnessed. I'm certain other things like that played out beyond my purview in the Trump administration where specific companies were you know, pushed very hard to get government dollars. We've only got a few more minutes. Ryan, you get the last question for the folks. Sure. So I guess uh, since it's the last question that I have, um, looking forward, if Trump were to be reelected, what do you think people should know about or worry about the most? And Miles, you've talked about this a bit about executive orders that might be already in the in the waiting, but Trump knows politics enough to know now is not the time to be describing those things because they'd be deeply unpopular or controversial. And in a second term, to, to the, either one of you who would like to talk about this, he doesn't have to worry about being reelected. The one thing that might have been a guardrail for him uh, these past four years is the reelection, uh, whether or not he would be able to win reelection and take that away. You know, what are we left with? Is that a concern, uh, a valid concern? And under that category, if it is a valid concern, what are some specifics that you think people should be uh, thinking about? Well, I'm happy to go and then Olivia, have you close us out. I would say that for me, the biggest worries are on foreign and defense policy. The president's inclinations on foreign policy are absolutely disastrous and antithetical to US security. And a lot of people have talked about this, but it could not be truer that the president displays a very keen interest in deepening relationships with our adversaries and a very clear disinterest, if not disdain, when it comes to dealing with our friends. Having that play out for four more years with a president who's unimpeded is going to have near irreparable consequences for US security. What do I mean specifically? Uh, I've said this before, the president wants to pull out of NATO. He doesn't believe in the NATO alliance, and he hears from our adversaries that the NATO alliance is problematic. The president wants to cancel decades-long defense agreements that we have with countries from the Middle East to East Asia, where he believes that we're paying too much money and not getting our side of the bargain. The president wants to withdraw US forces from places all around the globe where our troops fight forward so that we don't have to fight bad guys here in our city streets. The list goes on, and these would be things that would pop up, especially in the first year, almost weekly. The president would have a really bad idea about a treaty he wanted to end, a diplomatic arrangement he wanted to blow up. I experienced a number of diplomatic agreements. We were negotiating on behalf of the president that he would then self-sabotage and blow up behind our backs. Uh, he won't feel constricted in a second term to preserve those alliances that we have around the globe. He was convinced that he would lose Republicans 
Uh, I mean, we told him that, that he would lose Republicans and lose the election if he did this because national security conservatives would abandon him. So he avoided a lot of those impulses, but he can't, uh, he doesn't have the self-control. I mean, his tweet to pull out of Syria, which none of us knew about before it happened, his urge to pull it out of Afghanistan, even though previously we convinced him to stay in, and on and on, that's going to be much worse in the second term. And it's going to be mainstream things that everyone can agree on, like we should have uh, continued alliance relationships in Western Europe. He'll want to start ending those. That really gives me a lot of pause, makes me worry about a second term. And then overall, I think the damage to our institutions, the president has no regard for the system itself. I mean, at one point, he told us in a meeting, he wanted us to take a bill to Congress to get rid of the judges, to literally have the Congress reduce the number of judges in the United States, specifically certain judges that he named, because he didn't like the decisions that they were reaching. Uh, when he says those things, Trump's not joking. Uh, he, he really wants the, to curtail the power of the judiciary so he's more powerful, expand the power of the executive, and dramatically reduce Congress's oversight power, all because it's in his self-interest. So I worry about that damage, and it's why Olivia and I teamed up to we launched an organization recently called Repair, the Republican Political Alliance for Integrity and Reform. And we launched Repair because whether we have four more months of Donald Trump or four years and four months more of Donald Trump, we want to be able to shine a light on all the places he's done that damage and talk about how we repair that damage that's been done with better policies or how we can insulate our institutions against corruption in the future. Olivia? I think my greatest concern will be we will end up in Trump's America. And the Trump America that I've seen the past four years increasingly, and what I see in the next four years under Trump will be the America of racism, divisiveness. And I strongly feel that we'll have the white supremacists running amok in the White House. And as a homeland person, I am very worried about the extremists that's the extremism that's that's on the rise in this country and i you know i think when i look at threats i always think you know i think cybersecurity is definitely up there but i do think domestic terrorism and what's happening right now domestically really needs the attention um, that it deserves and we should be watching that closely and if we have him in the white house you know he doesn't stand up to that rhetoric. And I think what we're gonna see is we're gonna see greater division in our country. We're not gonna see law and order. I mean, I don't care how many times he says he's a president of law and order, that's just not, not reality. That's not what he's actually encouraging. And I think if we thought the anti-immigrant rhetoric was bad the past four years, and we thought the child separation policies were bad, and we thought the refugee ceiling policy was bad, we're talking probably that refugee ceiling number dropping to zero. And I know Miles has talked about this in the past publicly, but he is absolutely right because they will no longer be afraid of the evangelical voting bloc. They will no longer be afraid of the evangelicals who support the vice president, regardless of what insanity is going on in the Oval Office. And let me be clear, we, we at times had to hold our ground on the refugee issue. I certainly tried to hang in there and I certainly lobbied for it because I feel that that is actually a big part of the national security apparatus as well. There's a certain national security aspect to the refugee program that, that is important. But I think that you will see all of those things that have caused us pause along the way on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republican, 
you are going to see those at full maximum display should he get reelected. Wow. Well, I, you know, I have to say, um, I'm so glad that both of you uh, consented to join us here. I'm so glad to have uh, partners in this undertaking like Ryan and Kavita who asked such probing questions uh, because so much of what you've said, even though you have been on television a lot and been on podcasts a lot and have written, um, is still not making its way out there. And I think in particular, the scope of the issues that we're talking about. Um, I suspect if we had another hour, we'd end up getting into uh, whole sets of, of, of other issues or breaking down uh, what is, you know, um, behind some of the, the, the most egregious errors or, 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 or worse that were done by this administration. Maybe we can do that again. Maybe, maybe you'll consent and come back and, um, and uh, uh, join us. Uh, maybe you can even have another couple of your colleagues who played a senior role in this administration join us and we could do something longer form because you can't do that on MSNBC. You can't do that on other networks, but you can on a podcast. And I think it would be great to have a longer conversation about what is going to be in need of, to use your term of your organization, repair. Um, it's going to be a big job of work, regardless of what happens in the election to come. You guys are, are leading the way on that. Um, and we thank you for your time. Uh, and um, I strongly encourage everybody who's listened to this to listen to other episodes that we've done this week. We really had an extraordinary week. Uh, Ed Luce's article was discussed on Monday, dealing with the upcoming constitutional crisis, quite apart from any political uh, underlying factors like we've discussed here. Uh, we had a remarkable conversation with Tim Weiner and Jim Clapper and Laura Rosenberger about the U.S.-Russia relationship, which has cropped up in the news even today uh, with new stories of Russian interference in the election. Uh, and we had this great conversation that we uh, had today, which will be released as a pod over the weekend with uh, Susan Glasser and Peter Baker uh, about their book about uh, James Baker. Um, which ties into many of the themes, again, that that Miles and Olivia have talked about here today. And then this, which I think is really the capper, a really extraordinary conversation. So go to the DSRnetwork.com for more information on those and seeing what we've got in store next week, which I have to admit will include a podcast devoted to my book, um, which is coming out on Tuesday and which Ed is, Ed is, Ed is going to host and is going to be an interactive session so people can. Uh, uh, call in, and if you if you if you go and you sign up at our at our website, you you actually get a book. I'll sign the book, and you can ask questions, and they can be as as rude as 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 you like, or just you know offer me a compliment. I could use it. Anyway, thank you everybody for joining, uh, and uh, stay healthy out there. Bye bye.